Section 25 of The Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume 3, Chapter 23. Letters 1883 to Howells and others, a guest of the Marquis of Lorne, the history game, a play by Howells and Mark Twain. Mark Twain, in due season, finished the Mississippi book and placed it in Osgood's hands for publication. It was a sort of partnership arrangement in which Clemens was to furnish the money to make the book and pay Osgood a percentage for handling it. It was, in fact, the beginning of Mark Twain's adventures as a publisher. Howells was not as happy in Florence as he had hoped to be. The social life there overwhelmed him. In February he wrote, Our two months in Florence have been the most ridiculous time that ever even half-witted people passed. We have spent them in chasing round after people for whom we cared nothing, and being chased by them. My story isn't finished yet, and what part of it is done bears the fatal marks of haste and distraction. Of course, I haven't put pen to paper yet on the play. I wring my hands and beat my breast when I think of how these weeks have been wasted, and how I have been forced to waste them by the infernal social circumstances from which I couldn't escape. Clemens, now free from the burden of his own book, was light of heart and full of ideas and news, also of sympathy and appreciation. Howells's story of this time was a woman's reason. Governor Jewell, of this letter, was Marshall Jewell, governor of Connecticut from 1871 to 1873. Later he was minister to Russia, and in 1874 was United States Postmaster General. To W. D. Howells in Florence, Hartford, March 1st, 1883. My dear Howells, we got ourselves ground up in that same mill once in London and another time in Paris. It is a kind of foretaste of hell. There is no way to avoid it except by the method which you have now chosen. One must live secretly and cut himself utterly off from the human race or life in Europe becomes an unbearable burden and work an impossibility. I learned something last night, and maybe it may reconcile me to go to Europe again sometime. I attended one of the astonishingly popular lectures of a man by the name of Stoddard, who exhibits interest in stereopticon pictures, and then knocks the interest all out of them with his comments upon them but all the world go there to look and listen, and are apparently well satisfied. And they ought to be fully satisfied, if the lecture would only keep still, or die in the first act. But he described how retired tradesmen and farmers in Holland load a lazy scow with the family and the household effects, and then loaf along the waterways of the low countries all the summer long, paying no visits, receiving none, and just lazy in a heavenly life out in their own private, unpested society, and doing their literary work, if they have any, wholly uninterrupted. 
if you had hired such a boat and sent for us we should have a couple of satisfactory books ready for the press now with no marks of interruption vexatious wearinesses and other hellishnesses visible upon them anywhere we shall have to do this another time we have lost an opportunity for the present do you forget that heaven is packed with a multitude of all nations and that these people are all on the most familiar how the hell are you footing with talmage swinging around the circle to all eternity hugging the saints and patriarchs and archangels and forcing you to do the same unless you choose to make yourself an object of remark if you refrain then why do you try to get to heaven be warned in time we have all read your two opening numbers in the century and consider them almost beyond praise i hear no dissent from this verdict i did not know there was an untouched personage in american life but i had forgotten the auctioneer you have photographed him accurately i have been an utterly free person for a month or two and i do not believe i ever so greatly appreciated and enjoyed and realized the absence of the chains of slavery as i do this time usually my first waking thought in the morning is i have nothing to do today i belong to nobody i have ceased from being a slave of course the highest pleasure to be got out of freedom and having nothing to do is labor therefore i labor but i take my time about it i work one hour or four as happens to suit my mind and quit when i please and so these days are days of entire enjoyment I told Clark the other day to jog along comfortable and not get in a sweat. I said I believed you would not be able to enjoy editing that library over there where you have your own legitimate work to do and be pestered to death by society besides. Therefore, I thought if he got it ready for you against your return that that would be best and pleasantest. You remember Governor Jewell and the night he told about Russia down in the library? He was taken with a cold about three weeks ago, and I stepped over one evening, proposing to beguile an idle hour for him with a yarn or two, but was received at the door with whispers and the information that he was dying. His case had been dangerous during that day only, and he died that night, two hours after I left. His taking off was a prodigious surprise, and his death has been most widely and sincerely regretted. William E. Dodge, the father-in-law of one of Jewell's daughters, dropped suddenly dead the day before Jewell died, but Jewell died without knowing that. Jewell's widow went down to New York, to Dodge's house, the day after Jewell's funeral, and was to return here day before yesterday, and she did, in a coffin. She fell dead of heart disease while her trunks were being packed for her return home. Florence Strong, one of Jewel's daughters, who lives in Detroit, started east on an urgent telegram, but missed a connection somewhere and did not arrive here in time to see her father alive. She was his favorite child, and they had always been like lovers together. He always sent her a box of fresh flowers once a week till the day of his death, a custom which he never suspended even when he was in Russia mrs strong had only just reached her western home again when she was summoned to hartford to attend her mother's funeral i have had the impulse to write you several times i shall try to remember better henceforth 
with sincerest regards to all of you yours ever mark mark twain made another trip to canada in the interest of copyright this time to protect the mississippi book when his journey was announced by the press the marquis of lorne telegraphed an invitation inviting him to be his guest at rideau hall in ottawa clemens accepted of course and was handsomely entertained by the daughter of queen victoria and her husband then governor-general of canada on his return to hartford he found that osgood had issued a curious little book for which clemens had prepared an introduction it was an absurd volume though originally issued with serious intent its title being the new guide of the conversation in portuguese and english footnote the new guide of the conversation in portuguese and english by pedro cajolino with an introduction by mark twain osgood boston 1883 end of footnote evidently the new guide was prepared by some simple portuguese soul with but slight knowledge of english beyond that which could be obtained from a dictionary and his literal translation of english idioms are often startling as for instance this one taken at random a little learneds are happies enough for to may to satisfy their fancies in the literature mark twain thought this quaint book might amuse his royal hostess and forwarded a copy in what he considered to be the safe and proper form to colonel de winton in ottawa canada hartford june four eighty three dear colonel de winton i very much want to send a little book to her royal highness the famous portuguese phrase book but i do not know the etiquette of the matter and i would not wittingly infringe any rule of propriety it is a book which i perfectly well know will amuse her some at most if she has not seen it before and will still amuse her some at least even if she has inspected it a hundred times already so i will send the book to you and you who know all about the proper observances will protect me from indiscretion in case of need by putting the said book in the fire and remaining as dumb as i generally was when i was up there i do not rebind the thing because that would look as if i thought it worth keeping whereas it is only worth glancing at and casting aside will you please present my compliments to mrs de winton and mrs mackenzie and i beg to make my sincere compliments to you also for your infinite kindnesses to me i did have a delightful time up there most certainly truly yours s l clemens p s although the introduction dates a year back the book is only just now issued a good long delay s l c howells writing from venice in april manifested special interest in the play project something that would run like scheherazade for a thousand and one nights so perhaps this book was going better he proposed that they devote the month of october to the work and enclosed a letter from mallory who owned not only a religious paper the churchman but also the madison square theatre and was anxious for a howells play twenty years before howells had been consul to venice and he wrote now the idea of my being here is benumbing and silencing 
I feel like the wandering Jew or the ghost of the Cardiff giant. He returned to America in July. Clemens sent him word of welcome with glowing reports of his own undertakings. The story on which he was piling up manuscript was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, begun seven years before at Quarry Farm. He had no great faith in it then, and though he had taken it up again in 1880, his interest had not lasted to its conclusion. This time, however, he was in the proper spirit, and the story would be finished. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, July 20, 83. My dear Howells, we are desperately glad you and your gang are home again. May you never travel again till you go aloft or alow. Charlie Clark has gone to the other side for a run and will be back in August. He has been sick and needed the trip very much. Mrs. Clemens had a long and wasting spell of sickness last spring, but she is pulling up now. The children are booming, and my health is ridiculous, it's so robust, notwithstanding the newspaper misreports. I haven't piled up manuscripts so in years as I've done since we came here to the farm three weeks and a half ago. Why, it's like old times, to step right into the study, damp from the breakfast table, and sail right in and sail right on, the whole day long, without thought of running short of stuff or words. I wrote four thousand words today, and I touched three thousand and upwards pretty often and don't fall below sixteen hundred any working day. And when I get fagged out, I lie abed a couple of days and read and smoke, and then go it again for six or seven days. I have finished one small book, and am away along in a big 433 one that I half finished two or three years ago. I expect to complete it in a month or six weeks, or two months more, and I shall like it whether anybody else does or not. It's a kind of companion to Tom Sawyer. There's a raft episode from it in second or third chapter of Life on the Mississippi. I'm booming these days, got health and spirits to waste, got an overplus, and if I were at home, we would write a play. But we must do it anyhow by and by. We stay here till September 10 then maybe a week at Indian Neck for sea air, then home. We are powerful glad you are all back and send love according. Yours ever, Mark. To Orion Clemens and family in Keokuk, Iowa. Elmira, July 22, 83. Private. Dear Ma and Orion and Molly, I don't know that I have anything new to report, except that Livy is still gaining, and all the rest of us flourishing. I haven't had such booming working days for many years. I am piling up manuscript in a really astonishing way. I believe I shall complete, in two months, a book which I have been fooling over for seven years. This summer it is no more trouble to me to write than it is to lie. Day before yesterday, I felt slightly warned to knock off work for one day, so I did it and took the open air. Then I struck an idea for the instruction of the children, 
and went to work and carried it out. It took me all day. I measured off 817 feet of the roadway in our farm grounds with a foot rule, and then divided it up among the English reigns from the Conqueror down to 1883, allowing one foot to the year. I whittled out a basket of little pegs and drove one in the ground at the beginning of each reign, and gave it that king's name, thus. I measured all the reigns exactly as many feet to the reign as there were years in it. You can look out over the grounds and see the little pegs from the front door, some of them close together, like Richard II, Richard Cromwell, James II, etc., and some prodigiously wide apart, like Henry III, Edward III, George III, etc. It gives the children a realizing sense of the length or brevity of a reign. Shall invent a violent game to go with it. And in bed last night I invented a way to play it indoors, in a far more voluminous way, as to multiplicity of dates and events, on a cribbage board. Hello, supper's ready. Love to all. Goodbye. Samuel. Orion Clemens would naturally get excited over the idea of the game and its commercial possibilities. Not more so than his brother, however, who presently employed him to arrange a quantity of historical data which the game was to teach. For a season, indeed, interest in the game became a sort of midsummer madness which pervaded the two households, at Keokuk and at Quarry Farm. Howells wrote his approval of the idea of learning history by the running foot, which was a pun, even if unintentional, for in its outdoor form it was a game of speed as well as knowledge. Howells adds that he has noticed that the newspapers are exploiting Mark Twain's new invention of a history game, and we shall presently see how this happened. Also in this letter, Howells speaks of an English nobleman to whom he has given a letter of introduction. He seemed a simple, quiet, gentlemanly man, with a good taste in literature, which he evinced by going about with my books in his pockets and talking of yours. To W. D. Howells in Boston My dear Howells, how odd it seems to sit down to write a letter with the feeling that you've got time to do it. But I'm done work for this season, and so have got time. I've done two seasons' work in one, and haven't anything left to do now but revise. I've written eight or nine hundred manuscript pages in such a brief space of time that I mustn't name the number of days. I shouldn't believe it myself, and of course couldn't expect you to. I used to restrict myself to four or five hours a day and five days in the week, but this time I've wrought from breakfast till 5.15 p.m., six days in the week, and once or twice I smouched a Sunday when the boss wasn't looking. Nothing is half so good as literature hooked on Sunday, on the sly. I wrote you and Twitchell on the same night about the game, and was appalled to get a note from him saying he was going to print part of my letter, and was going to do it before I could get a chance to forbid it. I telegraphed him, but was of course too late. If you haven't ever tried to invent an indoor historical game, don't. I've got the thing at last so it will work, I guess, but I don't want any more tasks of that kind. When I wrote you, I thought I had it, 
whereas I was only merely entering upon the initiatory difficulties of it. I might have known it wouldn't be an easy job, or somebody would have invented a decent historical game long ago, a thing which nobody had done. I think I've got it in pretty fair shape, so I have caveated it. Earl of Onston, is that it? All right. We shall be very glad to receive them and get acquainted with them, and much obliged to you, too. There's plenty of worse people than the nobilities. I went up and spent a week with the Marquis and the Princess Louise, and had as good a time as I want. I'm powerful glad you are all back again, and we will come up there if our little tribe will give us the necessary furlough, and if we can't get it, you folks must come to us and give us an extension of time. We get home September 11. Hello. I think I see Warren coming. Goodbye letter from Clark, which explains for him. Love to you all, from the Clemenses. No, it wasn't Warren. I wonder what the devil has become of that man. He was to spend today with us, and the day's most gone now. We are enjoying your story with our usual unspeakableness, and I'm right glad you threw in the shipwreck and the mystery. I like it. Mrs. Crane thinks it's the best story you've written yet. We. But we always think the last one is the best. And why shouldn't it be? Practice helps. P.S. I thought I had sent all our loves to all of you, but Mrs. Clemens says I haven't. Damn it, a body can't think of everything, but a woman thinks you can. I better seal this now, else there'll be more criticism. I perceive I haven't got the love in yet. Well, we do send the love of all the family to all the houses. S.L.C. There had been some delay and postponement in the matter of the play which Howells and Clemens agreed to write. They did not put in the entire month of October, as they had planned, but they did put in a portion of that month, the latter half, working out their old idea. In the end, it became a revival of Colonel Sellers, or rather a caricature of that gentle-hearted old visionary. Clemens had always complained that the actor Raymond had never brought out the finer shades of Colonel Sellers' character, but Raymond, in his worst performance, never belied his original, as did Howells and Clemens, in his dramatic revival. These two, working together, let their imaginations run riot with disastrous results. The reader can judge something of this himself from The American Claimant, the book which Mark Twain would later build from the play. But at this time they thought it a great triumph. They had cracked their sides, laughing over its construction, as Howells once said, and they thought the world would do the same over its performance. They decided to offer it to Raymond, but rather haughtily, indifferently, because any number of other actors would be waiting for it. But this was a miscalculation. Raymond now turned the tables. Though favorable to the idea of a new play, he declared this one did not present his old sellers at all, but a lunatic. In the end he returned the manuscript with a brief note. Attempts had already been made to interest other actors, and would continue for some time. End of section 25. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.